The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Turnell. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 3. At night we came to the house of Don Juan Fuentes, a rich landed proprietor, but not personally known to either of my companions. On approaching the house of a stranger, it is usual to follow several little points of etiquette. Riding up slowly to the door, the salutation of Ave Maria is given. And until somebody comes out and asks you to alight, it is not customary even to get off your horse. The formal answer of the owner is, Sin pecado concebida, that is, conceived without sin. Having entered the house, some general conversation is kept up for a few minutes, till permission is asked to pass the night there. This is granted as a matter of course. The stranger then takes his meals with the family, and a room is assigned him, where, with the horse-cloths belonging to his ricado, or saddle of the pompous, he makes his bed. It is curious how similar circumstances produce such similar results in manners. At the Cape of Good Hope, the same hospitality, and very nearly the same points of etiquette, are universally observed. The difference, however, between the character of the Spaniard and that of the Dutch boar is shown by the former never asking his guest a single question beyond the strictest rule of politeness, whilst the honest Dutchman demands where he has been, where he is going, what is his business, and even how many brothers, sisters, or children he may happen to have. Shortly after our arrival, at Don Juan's, one of the largest herds of cattle was driven in toward the house, and three beasts were picked out to be slaughtered for the supply of the establishment. These half-wild cattle are very active, and knowing full well the fatal lazo, they led the horses a long and laborious chase. After witnessing the rude wealth displayed in the number of cattle, men, and horses, Don Juan's miserable house was quite curious. The floor consisted of hardened mud, and the windows were without glass. The sitting-room boasted only of a few of the roughest chairs and stools, with a couple of tables. The supper, although several strangers were present, consisted of two large piles, one of roast beef, the other of boiled, with some pieces of pumpkin. Besides this latter, there was no other vegetable, not even a morsel of bread. For drinking, a large earthenware jug of water served the whole party. Yet this man was the owner of several square miles of land, of which nearly every acre would produce corn, and, with a little trouble, all the common vegetables. The evening was spent in smoking, with a little impromptu singing accompanied by the guitar. The senoritas all sat together in one corner of the room, and did not sup with the men. So many works have been written about these countries that it is almost superfluous to describe either the lazo or the bolas. The lazo consists of a very strong but thin, well-plated rope, made of rawhide. One end is attached to the broad surcingle, which fastens together the complicated gear of the ricado, or saddle used in the pampas. The other is terminated by a small ring of iron or brass, by which a noose can be formed. The gaucho, when he is going to use the lazo, keeps a small coil in his bridle hand, 
and in the other holds the running noose, which is made very large, generally having a diameter of about eight feet. This he twirls round his head, and by the dexterous movement of his wrist keeps the noose open. Then, throwing it, he causes it to fall on any particular spot he chooses. The lazo, when not used, is tied up in a small coil to the after part of the ricado. The bolas, or balls, are of two kinds. The simplest, which is chiefly used for catching ostriches, consists of two round stones, covered with leather, and united by a thin plated thong, about eight feet long. The other kind differs only in having three balls united by the thongs to a common center. The gaucho holds the smallest of the three in his hand and whirls the other two round and round his head. Then, taking aim, sends them like a chain shot revolving through the air. The balls no sooner strike any object than, winding round it, they cross each other and become firmly hitched. The size and weight of the balls varies according to the purpose for which they are made. When of stone, although not larger than an apple, they are sent with such force as sometimes to break the leg even of a horse. I've seen the balls made of wood, and as large as a turnip, for the sake of catching these animals without injuring them. The balls are sometimes made of iron, and these can be hurled to the greatest distance. The main difficulty in using either lazo or bolas is to ride so well as to be able at full speed, and while suddenly turning about, to whirl them so steadily round the head as to take aim. On foot, any person would soon learn the art. One day, as I was amusing myself by galloping and whirling the balls round my head, by accident the free one struck a bush, and its revolving motion being thus destroyed, it immediately fell to the ground, and, like magic, caught one hind leg of my horse. The other ball was then jerked out of my hand, and the horse fairly secured. Luckily, he was an old practiced animal, and knew what it meant. Otherwise, he would probably have kicked till he had thrown himself down. The gauchos roared with laughter. They cried out that they had seen every sort of animal caught, but had never before seen a man caught by himself. During the last two succeeding days, I reached the farthest point which I was anxious to examine. The country wore the same aspect, till at last the fine green turf became more wearisome than a dusty turnpike road. We everywhere saw great numbers of partridges, Nothura major. These birds do not go in cubbies, nor do they conceal themselves like the English kind. It appears a very silly bird. A man on horseback, by riding around and round in a circle, or rather in a spire so as to approach closer each time, may knock on the head as many as he pleases. The more common method is to catch them with a running noose or little lazo made of the stem of an ostrich's feather fastened to the end of a long stick. A boy on a quiet old horse will frequently thus catch thirty or forty in a day. In Arctic North America, the Indians catch the varying hare by walking spirally round and round it when on its form. The middle of the day is reckoned the best time when the sun is high and the shadow of the hunter not very long. On our return to Maldonado, we followed a rather different line of road. Near Pan de Azucar, a landmark well known to all those who have sailed up the Plata, I stayed a day at the house of a most hospitable old Spaniard. Early in the morning, we ascended to the Sierra de las Animas. 
By the aid of the rising sun, the scenery was almost picturesque. To the westward, the view extended over an immense level plain as far as the mount, at Montevideo, and to the eastward, over the mammalated country of Maldonado. On the summit of the mountain, there were several small heaps of stones, which evidently had lain there for many years. My companion assured me that they were the work of the Indians in the old time. The heaps were similar, but on a much smaller scale, to those commonly found on the mountains of Wales. The desire to signalize any event on the highest point of the neighboring land seems a universal passion with mankind. At the present day, not a single Indian, either civilized or wild, exists in this part of the province. Nor am I aware that the former inhabitants have left behind them any more permanent records than these insignificant piles on the summit of the Sierra de las Animas. The general and almost entire absence of trees in the Banda Oriental is remarkable. Some of the rocky hills are partly covered by the thickets, and on the banks of the larger streams, especially to the north of Las Minas, willow trees are not uncommon. Near the Arroyo Tapes I heard of a wood of palms, and one of these trees of considerable size I saw near the Pan de Azucar, in latitude 35 degrees. These, and the trees planted by the Spaniards, offer the only exceptions to the general scarcity of wood. Among the introduced kinds may be enumerated poplars, olives, peach, and other fruit trees. The peaches succeeded so well that they afford the main supply of firewood to the city of Buenos Aires. Extremely level countries, such as the Pampas, seldom appear favorable to the growth of trees. This may possibly be attributed either to the force of winds or the kind of drainage. In the nature of the land, however, around Maldonado, no such reason is apparent. The Rocky Mountains afford protected situations, enjoying various kinds of soil. Streamlets of water are common at the bottoms of nearly every valley, and the clayey nature of the earth seems adapted to retain moisture. It has been inferred, with much probability, that the presence of woodland is generally determined by the annual amount of moisture. Yet in this province, abundant and heavy rains fall during the winter, and the summer, though dry, is not so in any excessive degree. We see nearly the whole of Australia covered by lofty trees, yet that country possesses a far more arid climate. Hence we must look to some other and unknown cause. Confining our view to South America, we should certainly be tempted to believe the trees flourished only under a very humid climate, for the limit of the forest land follows in a most remarkable manner that of the damp winds. In the southern part of the continent, where the western gales charged with moisture from the Pacific prevail, every island on the broken west coast, from latitude 38 degrees to the extreme point of Tierra del Fuego, is densely covered by impenetrable forests. On the eastern side of the Cordillera, over the same extent of latitude, where a blue sky and a fine climate prove that the atmosphere has been deprived of its moisture by passing over the mountains, the arid plains of Patagonia support a most scanty vegetation. In the more northern parts of the continent, within the limits of the constant southeastern trade wind, the eastern sky is ornamented by magnificent forests, whilst the western coast, from latitude 4 degrees south to latitude 32 degrees south, may be described as a desert. 
on this western coast, northward of latitude four degrees south, where the trade wind loses its regularity and heavy torrents of rain fall periodically, the shores of the Pacific, so utterly desert in Peru, assume, near Cape Blanco, the character of luxuriance so celebrated at Guayanquil and Panama. Hence, in the southern and northern parts of the continent, the forest and desert lands occupy reversed positions with respect to the cordillera, and these positions are apparently determined by the direction of the prevalent winds. In the middle of the continent, there is a broad intermediate band, including central Chile and the provinces of La Plata, where the rain-bringing winds have not to pass over lofty mountains, and where the land is neither a desert nor covered by forests. But even the rule, if confined to South America, of trees flourishing only in a climate rendered humid by rain-bearing winds, has a strongly marked exception in the case of the Falkland Islands. These islands, situated in the same latitude with Tierra del Fuego, and only between two and three hundred miles distant from it, having a nearly similar climate, with a geological formation almost identical, with favorable situations and the same kind of peaty soil, yet can boast a few plants deserving even the title of bushes. Whilst in Tierra del Fuego it is impossible to find an acre of land not covered by the densest forest. In this case, both the direction of the heavy gales of wind and of the currents of the sea are favorable to the transport of seeds from Tierra del Fuego, as is shown by canoes and trunks of trees drifted from that country, and frequently thrown on the shores of the western Falkland. Hence perhaps it is that there are many plants common to the two countries, but with respect to the trees of Tierra del Fuego, even attempts made to transplant them have failed. During our stay at Maldonado, I collected several quadrupeds, eighty kinds of birds, and many reptiles, including nine species of snakes. Of the indigenous mammalia, the only one now left of any size which is common is the Cervus campestris. This deer is exceedingly abundant, often in small herds, throughout the countries bordering the Plata and in northern Patagonia. If a person crawling close along the ground slowly advances toward a herd, the deer frequently, out of curiosity, approach to reconnoiter him. I have by this means killed from one spot three out of the same herd. Although so tame and inquisitive, yet when approached on horseback they are exceedingly wary. In this country nobody goes on foot, and the deer knows man as its enemy only when he is mounted and armed with the bolas. At Bahia Blanca, a recent establishment in northern Patagonia, I was surprised to find how little the deer cared for the noise of a gun. One day I fired ten times from within eighty yards at one animal, and it was much more startled at the ball cutting up the ground than at the report of the rifle. My powder being exhausted, I was obliged to get up, to my shame as a sportsman be it spoken, though well able to kill birds on the wing, and halloo till the deer ran away. The most curious fact with respect to this animal is the overpoweringly strong and offensive odor which proceeds from the buck. It is quite indescribable. Several times while skinning the specimen which is now mounted at the Zoological Museum, I was almost overcome by nausea. I tied up the skin in a silk pocket handkerchief, and so carried it home. This handkerchief, after being well washed, I continually used, and it was of course repeatedly washed. 
Yet every time, for a space of one year and seven months, when first unfolded, I distinctly perceived the odor. This appears an astonishing instance of the permeance of some matter, which nevertheless in its nature must be most subtle and volatile. Frequently, when passing at the distance of half a mile leeward of a herd, I have perceived the whole air tainted with the effluvium. I believe the smell from the buck is most powerful at the period when its horns are perfect, or free from the hairy skin. When in this state, the meat is, of course, quite uneatable. But the gauchos assert that if buried for some time in fresh earth, the taint is removed. I have somewhere read that the islanders in the north of Scotland treat the rank carcasses of the fish-eating birds in the same manner. The order Rodentia is here very numerous in species. Of mice alone I obtained no less than eight kinds. In a footnote, in South America I collected altogether twenty-seven species of mice, and thirteen more are known from the works of Azara and other authors. Those collected by myself have been named and described by Mr. Waterhouse at the meetings of the Zoological Society. I must be allowed to take this opportunity of returning my cordial thanks to Mr. Waterhouse and to the other gentlemen attached to that society for their kind and liberal assistance on all occasions. End of footnote. The largest gnawing animal in the world, the Hydrocaris capybara, the water hog, is here also common. One which I shot at Montevideo weighed 98 pounds. Its length, from the end of the snout to the stump-like tail, was three feet two inches, and its girth three feet eight. These great rodents occasionally frequent the islands in the mouth of the Plata, where the water is quite salt, but are far more abundant on the borders of freshwater lakes and rivers. Near Maldonado, three or four generally live together. In the daytime, they either lie among the aquatic plants or openly feed on the turf plain. Footnote. In the stomach and duodenum of a capybara which I opened, I found a very large quantity of a thin yellowish fluid, in which scarcely a fiber could be distinguished. Mr. Owen informs me that a part of the esophagus is so constructed that nothing much larger than a crow-quill can be passed down. Certainly the broad teeth and strong jaws of this animal are well fitted to grind into pulp the aquatic plants on which it feeds. End of footnote. When viewed at a distance, from their manner of walking and color, they resemble pigs. But when seated on their haunches, and attentively watching any object with one eye, they reassume the appearance of their congeners, cavies, and rabbits. Both the front and side view of their head has quite a ludicrous aspect, from the great depth of their jaw. These animals, at Maldonado, were very tame. By cautiously walking, I approached within three yards of four old ones. This tameness may probably be accounted for by the jaguar having been banished for some years, and by the gaucho not thinking it worth his while to hunt them. As I approached nearer and nearer, they frequently made their peculiar noise, which is a low, abrupt grunt, not having much actual sound, but rather arising from the sudden expulsion of air. The only noise I know at all like it is the first hoarse bark of a large dog. Having watched the four from almost within arm's length, and they me, for several minutes, they rushed into the water at full gallop, with the greatest impetuosity, and emitted at the same time their bark. 
After diving a short distance, they came again to the surface, but only just showed the upper part of their heads. When the female is swimming in the water, and has the young ones, they are afraid to sit on her back. These animals are easily killed in numbers, but their skins are of trifling value, and the meat is very indifferent. On the islands in the Rio Parana, they are exceedingly abundant, and afford the ordinary prey to the jaguar. The tucutuco, Gitanomus brasiliensis, is a curious small animal, which may be briefly described as a gnar, with the habits of a mole. It is extremely numerous in some parts of the country, but it is difficult to be procured, and never, I believe, comes out of the ground. It throws up at the mouth of its burrows hillocks of earth like those of the mole, but smaller. Considerable tracts of country are so completely undermined by these animals that horses, in passing over, sink above their fetlocks. The tucutucos appear, to a certain degree, to be gregarious. The man who procured the specimens for me had caught six together, and he said this was a common occurrence. They are nocturnal in their habits, and their principal food is the roots of plants, which are the object of their extensive and superficial burrows. This animal is universally known by a very peculiar noise which it makes when beneath the ground. A person, the first time he hears it, is much surprised. For it is not easy to tell whence it comes, nor is it possible to guess what kind of creature utters it. The noise consists in a short but not rough nasal grunt, which is monotonously repeated about four times in quick succession. A footnote here says, At the Rio Negro, in northern Patagonia, there's an animal of the same habits, and probably a closely allied species, but which I never saw. Its noise is different from that of the Maldonado kind. It is repeated only twice instead of three or four times, and is more distinct and sonorous. When heard from a distance, it so closely resembles the sounds made in cutting down a small tree with an axe that I've sometimes remained in doubt concerning it. End of footnote. The name tuco-tuco is given in imitation of the sound. Where this animal is abundant, it may be heard at all times of the day, and sometimes directly beneath one's feet. When kept in a room, the tuco-tucos move both slowly and clumsily, which appears owing to the outward action of their hind legs, and they are quite incapable, from the socket of the thigh bone not having a certain ligament, of jumping even the smallest vertical height. They are very stupid in making any attempt to escape. When angry or frightened, they utter the tuku-tuku. Of those I kept alive, several, even the first day, became quite tame, not attempting to bite or to run away. Others were a little wilder. The man who caught them asserted that very many are invariably found blind. A specimen which I preserved in spirits was in this state. Mr. Reed considers it to be the effect of inflammation in the nictitating membrane. When the animal was alive, I placed my finger within half an inch of its head, and not the slightest notice was taken. It made its way, however, about the room nearly as well as the others. Considering the strictly subterranean habits of the tucutuco, the blindness, though so common, cannot be a very serious evil. Yet it appears strange that any animal should possess an organ frequently subject to be injured. Lamarck would have been delighted with this fact had he known it, when speculating, probably with more truth than usual with him, on the gradually acquired blindness of the Aspilax, a gnar living under the ground, 
and of the Proteus, a reptile living in dark caverns filled with water, in both of which animals the eye is in an almost rudimentary state and is covered by a tendinous membrane and skin. In the common mole the eye is extraordinarily small but perfect, though many anatomists doubt whether it is connected with the true optic nerve. Its vision must certainly be imperfect, though probably useful to the animal when it leaves its burrow. In the tuco-tuco, which I believe never comes to the surface of the ground, the eye is rather larger, but often rendered blind and useless, though without apparently causing any inconvenience to the animal. No doubt Lamarck would have said that the tuco-tuco is now passing into the state of the Asplax and Proteus.